Chapter Thirteen, Part One of Nana by Emile Zola, translated by Burton Rasco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirteen, Part One. Towards the end of September, Count Mifa, who was to dine at Nana's that evening, came at dusk to inform her of a sudden order he had received to be at the Tuileries. The house was not yet lighted up. The servants were laughing very loudly in the kitchen. He slowly ascended the staircase, the windows of which shone in the prevailing warm shadow. Upstairs the parlor door made no noise as he opened it. A rosy daylight was fading from the ceiling of the room. The crimson hangings, the capacious sofas, the lacquer furniture, all that medley of embroidered stuffs, of bronzes and of china was already disappearing beneath a slowly deepening veil of gloom which penetrated the corners, hiding alike the brilliancy of the ivory and the glitter of the gold. And there, in this obscurity, by the aid alone of the light color of her dress, he beheld Nana reclining in Georges's arms. All denial on their part was impossible. He uttered a suppressed cry and stood as one lost. Nana sprang to her feet and pushed him into the bedroom to give the youngster time to get off. Come in here, she murmured, scarcely knowing what she said. I will explain. She was exasperated at being caught like that. She had never before given way in such a manner at home in that parlor with the doors unfastened. A number of things had tended to bring it about, a quarrel with Georges who was madly jealous of Philippe. He sobbed so bitterly on her neck that she could not resist, scarcely knowing how to calm him, and pitying him in her heart. And on the one occasion when she was so foolish as to forget herself thus, with a youngster who could not even bring her bunches of violets now, as his mother guarded him so strictly, the Count must needs come and catch them. Really, she had no luck. That was all one got by being a good-natured girl. However, the obscurity in the bedroom where she had pushed the Count was complete. Then, feeling her way, she went and rang furiously for a lamp. After all, it was that Julien's fault. If there had been a light in the parlor, nothing of all this would have happened. That stupid darkness which had come on had played the deuce with her heart. I beg of you, Ducky, be reasonable, said she when Zoe brought a light. The Count, sitting down, his hands on his knees, looked on the ground overcome by what he had just seen. He could not utter a word of anger. He trembled, as though seized with a horror which froze him. This silent anguish deeply affected the young woman. She tried to console him. Well, yes, I was wrong. It was very naughty of me. You see, I am sorry for my fault. I am very grieved, as it annoys you so much. Come now, you too, be nice and forgive me. She had sat down at his feet and was seeking his glance with a look of submissive tenderness to see if he was very angry with her. Then, as heaving a deep sigh, he recovered himself. She became more wheedling. The Count yielded to her entreaties. He merely insisted on Georges being sent away. But all illusion was gone. He could no longer believe in Nana's sworn fidelity. On the morrow, Nana would deceive him again, and he remained in the torment of possessing her simply through cowardice, through his fright at the idea of living without her. This was the epoch of her existence, when Nana brightened Paris with an increase of splendor. She became more imposing still on the horizon of ice. She domineered over the city with the insolent display of her luxury, with her contempt for money, which caused her to publicly melt away fortunes. In her mansion there was like the glare of a furnace. Her continual desires fed it. 
the least breath from her lips would change the gold into fine ashes which the wind swept away at every hour. Never before had such a mania for expense been seen. The house seemed built over an abyss into which men with their wealth, their bodies, even their names were precipitated, without leaving the trace of a little dust behind. This girl, with the tastes of a parrot, nibbling radishes and burnt almonds, playing with her meat, had bills to the extent of five thousand francs a month for her table. In the servants' hall there was an unbridled waste, a ferocious leakage, which emptied the casks of wine and ran up bills increased by three or four hands through which they passed. Victorine and François reigned supreme in the kitchen, where they invited their friends, not to speak of a host of cousins whom they fed at their own homes with cold joints and meat soups. Julien exacted commissions from all the tradespeople. A glazier did not put in a thirty-sous pane of glass, but the butler had twenty added on for himself. Charles devoured the oats for the horses, ordering double the necessary supply, selling by a back door what came in by the front one. Whilst in the midst of this universal pillage, of this sack of a town taken by assault, Zoe, by great art, succeeded in saving appearances, covering the thefts of all the others the better to hide and secure her own. But what was wasted was still worse. The food of the previous day thrown in the gutter, an encumbrance of victuals at which the servants turned up their noses, the glasses all sticky with sugar, gas jets blazing away, turned on recklessly, sufficient to blow up the place and negligences and spitefulness and accidents, all that can hasten ruin in an establishment devoured by so many mouths. Then, upstairs in Madame's rooms, the downfall was even greater still. Dresses costing ten thousand francs, worn only twice and sold by Zoe. Jewels which disappeared as though they had crumbled away at the bottoms of the drawers. Idiotic purchases, novelties of the day, forgotten in a corner on the morrow and swept into the street. She could never see anything costing a great deal without desiring it. She thus created around her a continual devastation of flowers and precious knick-knacks, being all the more delighted in proportion to the price paid for them. Nothing remained perfect in her hands. She broke everything, or it faded, or became soiled between her little white fingers. A strewing of nameless remnants, of crumpled rags, of muddy tatters followed in her wake. Then the heavy settlements burst out in the midst of this waste of pocket money. Twenty thousand francs owing to the milliner, thirty thousand to the linen draper, twelve thousand to the bootmaker. Her stable had swallowed fifty thousand. In six months her dressmaker's bill had run up to a hundred thousand francs. Without her having added to her household, which La Bordette had estimated would cost on an average four hundred thousand francs yearly, she reached that year a million, amazed herself at the sum, and quite incapable of saying where all the money could possibly have gone to. Men piled up one upon the other, gold emptied out in barrowfuls, were unable to fill that chasm which was forever opening deeper and deeper beneath the foundations of her house in the disruption of her luxury. Nana, however, still nursed a last caprice. Agitated once more with the idea of redecorating her bedroom, she thought she had at last found something to suit her fancy. A room hung in tea-rose velvet, padded and reaching up to the ceiling in the shape of a tent, ornamented with little silver buttons and with gold lace and cords. It seemed to her that this would look both rich and tender, a superb background to her fair skin. But the room, however, was merely to serve as a framework to the bed, a prodigy of dazzling brightness. Nana dreamed of a bed such as was never seen before. A throne, an altar, to which all Paris would come to adore her sovereign nudity. 
it was to be entirely of gold and silver like an immense jewel, golden roses scattered over a silver network. At the head, a band of cupids amongst the flowers would be glancing down, with laughter on their faces, watching the voluptuous pleasures in the shadow of the curtains. She had consulted La Bordette, who had brought two goldsmiths to see her. They were already preparing the drawings. The bed was to cost fifty thousand francs, and Mifa was to present her with it as a New Year gift. What surprised the young woman was that in this ever-flowing river of gold she was constantly without money. Some days she scarcely knew what to do for want of the most ridiculous sums of a few louis. She had to borrow of Zoe, or else raise funds any way she could. But before resigning herself to extreme measures, she would sound her friends, getting out of the men whatever they had about them, even Sue, in a jocular sort of way. For three months past, she had especially been emptying Philippe's pockets in this manner. He now never called whenever there was a crisis at hand without leaving his purse behind him on leaving. Soon, becoming bolder, Nana had begun to ask him for loans, two hundred francs, three hundred francs, never more for bills becoming due or debts that could not remain longer unpaid. And Philippe, who in July had been made a captain and paymaster of his regiment, would bring the money on the morrow, with the excuse that he was not rich, for good Madame Hugon now treated her sons with singular harshness. At the end of three months, these little loans, often repeated, amounted to some ten thousand francs. The captain still laughed in his hearty sonorous way, yet he was growing thin, appearing absent-minded at times, with a look of suffering on his face. But a glance from Nana transfigured him in a sort of sensual ecstasy. She was very playful with him, intoxicating him with kisses behind doors, bewitching him with sudden abandonments of herself, which tied him to her petticoats the whole time he was off duty. One night, Nana having mentioned that her name was also Thérèse, and that her saint's day was on the 15th October, the gentlemen all sent her presents. Captain Philippe brought his, an old Saxon china comfit box, mounted with gold. He found her alone in her dressing-room, having just come out of her bath, clothed only in a loose scarlet and white flannel dressing-gown, and very busy examining the presents spread out on a table. She had already broken a scent bottle in rock crystal in trying to take the stopper out. "'Oh, you are too nice,' said she. "'Whatever is it? Show me.' What a child you are to spend your money in things like this. She scolded him because he was not rich, although really very pleased to see him spend all he had on her, the only proof of love which ever touched her. However, she handled the comfit box, wishing to see how it was made, opening and shutting it. Take care, he murmured. It's not very strong. But she shrugged her shoulders. Did he think she had the hands of a railway porter? and suddenly the hinge remained between her fingers whilst the lid fell to the ground and broke. She stood lost in amazement with her eyes fixed on the pieces. Oh, it's broken, said she. Then she began to laugh. The pieces on the floor looked funny to her. It was a nervous gaiety. She had the stupid and cruel laugh of a child who founds amusement in destruction. Philippe was seized for a moment with a feeling of indignation. The wretched woman did not know what agony that trifle had cost him. When she saw him looking so upset, she endeavored to restrain herself. Anyhow, it wasn't my fault. It was cracked. Those old things never keep together. It was the lid. Did you see the stupid way in which it fell off? And she burst out laughing again. But as the young man's eyes filled with tears, in spite of his efforts to restrain them, she lovingly threw her arms round his neck. 
How silly you are. I love you all the same. If nothing was ever broken, the dealers would never sell anything. It's all made to be broken. Look at this fan. It isn't even stuck together. She seized hold of a fan and roughly pulled it open. The silk tore in two. That seemed to excite her. To show that she did not care anything for the other presents as she had spoiled his, she regaled herself with a general massacre, knocking the different things about, proving as she destroyed them all there was not one of them that was solid. A glimmer lighted up her vacant eyes, a slight curl of her lips displayed her white teeth. Then, when all the things were in pieces, she struck the table with her open hands looking very red and laughing louder than ever, and stammered forth in a childish voice, All gone, no more. No more. Then Philippe, yielding to the intoxication, cheered up, and, pressing against her, kissed her on the neck and bosom. She abandoned herself to him, clinging to his shoulders, feeling so happy that she could not recollect ever having enjoyed herself so much before. And without leaving go of him, she caressingly said, I say, darling, you might manage to bring me ten louis tomorrow. It's an awful nuisance, a baker's bill which is worrying me. He became very pale. Then, kissing her for a last time on the forehead, he merely said, I will do my best. A pause ensued. She was dressing herself. He was pressing his face against the window pane. At the end of a minute he returned to where she stood and said slowly, Nana, you ought to marry me. The idea seemed so ludicrous to the young woman that she could not finish fastening her petticoats. But, my poor fellow, you must be ill. Is it because I've asked you for ten louis that you offer me your hand? Never. I love you too much for that. What a stupid idea to get into your head. And as Zoe entered the room to put Madame's boots on, they dropped the subject. The maid had at once caught sight of the remnants of the presents scattered over the table. She asked if they were to be put anywhere, and Madame having said that they could be thrown away, she gathered them up in her apron. Down in the kitchen, the servants quarreled together as they shared Madame's leavings. That day, Georges, in spite of having been forbidden by Nana to do so, had sneaked into the house. François had plainly enough seen him come in, but now the servants merely laughed among themselves over their mistress's embarrassments. He had crept into the parlor when the sound of his brother's voice arrested his advance, and with his ear at the keyhole he had heard all that had taken place, the kisses, the offer of marriage. A feeling of horror froze him. He went off, idiotic and with a sensation of emptiness in his head. It was only when he reached the Rue Richelieu in his room over his mother's that his heart found relief in furious sobs. This time, doubt was impossible. An abominable vision kept appearing before his eyes. Nana in Philippe's arms. And it seemed to him an incest. When he thought himself calmed, memory returned, and in a fresh fit of jealous rage he threw himself on his bed, biting the sheets and uttering horrible oaths which increased his passion. The rest of the day passed thus. He complained of a headache so as to be able to remain in his room. But the night was more terrible still. A murderous fever shook his frame in a continuous nightmare. If his brother had lived in the house he would have gone and stabbed him with a knife. When day returned, he tried to reason with himself. It was he who ought to die. He would throw himself from the window as an omnibus passed. However, towards ten o'clock he went out. He wandered about Paris, rambled over the bridges, and then at last felt an invincible longing to see Nana. Perhaps with a word she would save him. 
and three o'clock was striking as he entered the house in the Avenue de Villiers. Towards midday some shocking news had quite overwhelmed Madame Hugon. Philippe had been in prison since the previous evening, accused of having stolen twelve thousand francs from the regimental chest. For three months past he had been embezzling small sums, hoping to replace them, and hiding the deficit by means of false accounts. And this fraud had succeeded thanks to the negligence of the managing council. The old lady, crushed by her child's crime, uttered at first a cry of rage against Nana. She knew of Philippe's intimacy with the young woman. Her sadness came from this misfortune, which was the cause of her remaining in Paris, through the fear of some catastrophe. But never had she dreaded such shame, and now she reproached herself for having refused him money, as though she had been an accomplice. Having sunk into an armchair, her legs so to say paralyzed, she felt herself useless, incapable of doing anything, only fit to die. But the sudden thought of Georges consoled her. Georges was left her. He might do something, perhaps save them both. Then, without asking help from anyone, desirous of hiding all this amongst themselves, she dragged herself along and ascended the stairs, fortified by the thought that she still had one love remaining. But the room above was empty. The doorkeeper told her that Monsieur Georges had gone out early. The signs of a second misfortune hovered about the room. The bed, with its torn and crumpled sheets, told an unmistakable tale of anguish. A chair knocked over on the ground amongst some clothes seemed to forebode death. Georges was probably at that woman's, and Madame Hugo, with dry eyes and a firm step, descended the staircase. She wanted her sons. She was going to demand them. Ever since the morning, Nana had had nothing but worry. First of all, there was that baker, who, as early as nine o'clock, had called with his bill, a mere nothing, a hundred and thirty-three francs worth of bread, which she had been unable to settle for, in the midst of her regal style of living. He had called twenty times, exasperated at having lost the custom on the day he had declined to give further credit, and the servants espoused his cause. François said that Madame would never pay him if he did not make a great fuss. Charles talked of going upstairs to get an old bill for straw settled, whilst Victorine advised them to wait till some gentleman called and to get the money by going to the drawing-room when he was there. The servants' hall was deeply interested. All the tradespeople were kept informed of what was going on. There were gossipings of three and four hours' duration. Madame was disrobed, pulled to pieces, talked about, with the rancor of idle menials bursting with good living. Julien, the butler, alone pretended to take Madame's part. She was, all the same, a fine woman, and when the others accused him of having enjoyed some of her favors, he laughed in a foppish sort of way which put the cook beside herself, for she would have liked to have been a man to spit on such women, they disgusted her so much. François had maliciously left the baker waiting in the hall without informing Madame. As she came downstairs at lunchtime, she found herself face to face with him. She took his bill and told him to call again about three o'clock. Then, muttering a number of filthy expressions, he went off, swearing to be punctual and to pay himself some way or other. Nana made a very poor lunch, being upset by this scene. This time she would have to satisfy the man. On ten different occasions, at least, she had put the money for him on one side. But, somehow or other, it had always dribbled away. One day for flowers or another day for a subscription for an old gendarme. She was, however, counting on Philippe, and was even surprised that he had not already been with his two hundred francs. It was awful ill luck. 
Two days before she had again rigged out satin, a regular trousseau, spending nearly twelve hundred francs in dresses and underclothing, and she had not a louis left. Towards two o'clock, as Nana was beginning to be anxious, La Bordette called. He brought the designs for the bedstead. It was a diversion and produced a fit of joy which caused the young woman to forget everything else. She clapped her hands, she danced. Then, brimful of curiosity, leaning over a table in the parlor, she examined the drawings which La Bordette explained to her. You see, this is the boat. In the center, a bunch of full-blown roses, then a garland of flowers and buds. The leaves will be in green gold and the roses in red gold. And this is the great design for the head, a troop of cupids dancing in a circle against a silver trellis. But Nana interrupted him, carried away by rapture. Oh, isn't he funny, the little one, the one in the corner turning a somersault? And look at his saucy laugh. They've all got such wicked eyes. I say, my boy, I shall have to be careful of what I do before them. She was in an extraordinary state of satisfied pride. The goldsmiths had said that no queen ever slept on such a bedstead. Only there was a slight complication. La Bordette showed her two designs for the piece at the foot, the one which reproduced the subject of the boat and cupids, the other which was altogether a new design, a female figure representing night enveloped in her veil, which a fawn was drawing aside, displaying her radiant nudity. He added that if she selected this second design, the goldsmiths intended to make the figure representing night like her. This idea, which was in questionable taste, made her turn pale with pleasure. She saw herself as a little silver statue, the symbol of the tepid, voluptuous pleasures of darkness. Of course you will only sit for the head and shoulders, said La Bordette. Why? asked she, coolly looking him in the face. As it is a question of a work of art, I shan't care a fig for the sculptor who copies me. So it was settled. She chose the second subject also. But he stopped her. Wait, it will cost six thousand francs more. Well, that's all the same to me, cried she, bursting out laughing. My little muff will pay. It was thus she called Count Mufa now amongst her intimate acquaintances, and the gentleman never asked after him otherwise than as, Did you see your little muff last night? Ah, I thought I should have found the little muff here. A simple familiarity which, however, she did not as yet allow herself to make use of in his presence. La Bordette rolled up the drawings as he gave her some final information. The goldsmiths engaged to deliver the bedstead in two months' time towards the 25th of December. The very next week a sculptor would come to make the rough model for the figure of night. As she walked with him to the stairs, Nana remembered the baker and said suddenly, By the way, do you happen to have ten louis about you? One of La Bordette's principles, and which he found invaluable, was never to lend money to women. He always gave the same answer. No, my girl, I'm quite stumped. But would you like me to call on your little muff? She refused. It was useless. Two days before, she had got five thousand francs out of the count. Following La Bordette, though it was scarcely half-past two when he called, the baker reappeared, and he roughly seated himself on a bench in the hall, swearing very loud. The young woman was listening to him up on the first floor. She turned pale. She suffered especially at hearing up there the secret joy of the servants. They were splitting their sides with laughing in the kitchen. The coachman looked on from the yard. François passed across the hall without any necessity, and then went and told the others how things were progressing, 
after bestowing a chuckle of intelligence on the baker. They did not care a straw for madame. The walls seemed bursting with the sounds of their mirth. She felt herself all alone, despised by her servants, who spied on her and bespattered her with their filthy jokes. Then, as she had had an idea of borrowing the hundred and thirty-three francs from Zoe, she gave it up. She already owed her some money. She was too proud to risk a refusal. So strong an emotion possessed her that she returned to her bedroom, saying aloud, Never mind, my girl. Only depend upon yourself. Your body's your own, and it's best to make use of it rather than to submit to an insult. And without even ringing for Zoe, she hastily dressed herself to go to Old Triconst. It was her supreme resource in the hours of great distress. Very much asked for, always required by the old woman, she refused or accepted according to her wants. And the days, which were becoming more and more frequent when she suffered from any embarrassment in her royal career, she was always sure of finding twenty-five louis awaiting her there. She would go to old Tricons in the easy style gained by habit, the same as poor people go to the pawn-shop. But on leaving her bedroom she ran up against Georges, standing in the middle of the parlour. She did not notice his wax-like paleness, the dull light in his wide-open eyes. She uttered a sigh of relief. "'Ah, you've come from your brother.' "'No,' said the youngster, turning paler still. Then she made a gesture of despair. "'What did he want? Why was he standing in front of her? Come, she was in a hurry, and she passed him. Then, retracing her steps, she asked, "'Have you any money with you?' "'No.' "'It's true. How stupid of me. Never a thing. Not even the six sous for their omnibus. Mamma won't. What men!' and she was hurrying off, but he stopped her. He wished to speak to her. She, excited, kept saying that she had not time, when with a word he made her leave off. Listen, I know you are going to marry my brother. Well, that was comic. She dropped into a chair to laugh at her ease. Yes, continued the youngster, and I will not have it. It is I whom you must marry. That is why I have come. Eh, hey, what, you also? she exclaimed. Is it then a family complaint? But never. What an idea! Did I ever ask you to do such a disgraceful thing? Neither the one nor the other. Never. Then Georges' face brightened up. He might by chance have been mistaken. He resumed. Then swear to me that you are not my brother's mistress. Ah, you're becoming a confounded nuisance, said Nana, rising to her feet impatient to be off. It's funny for a minute, but I tell you I'm in a hurry. I'm your brother's mistress when I choose to be. Do you keep me? Do you pay here, that you come and call me to account? Yes, I'm your brother's mistress. He had seized her arm and squeezed it almost enough to break it as he stammered out. Don't say that! Don't say that! With a slap, she freed herself. He's whipping me now, the young monkey. My little fellow, you must be off. And at once, too. I've let you be here through kindness. It's just so, however wide you may open your eyes. You didn't expect, I suppose, to have me for your mamma until the day of my death. I've something better to do than to nurse brats. He listened to her in an agony which stiffened his limbs and left him powerless. Each word stabbed him to the heart with a blow so hard that he felt it was killing him. She, not even noticing his suffering, continued, happy at being able to vent herself on him for all her worries of the morning. 
It's just the same with your brother. He's a nice one, he is. He promised me two hundred francs. Ah, well, I may wait forever for him. It's not that I care about his money. Not enough to pay for my pomades. But he's left me in a fix. Now, would you like to know? Well, through your brother's fault, I'm going out to earn twenty-five louis from another man. Then, in a state of bewilderment, he stood before the door, and he cried and implored, clasping his hands together and muttering, Oh, no, oh, no. Well, I'm willing, said she. Have you the money? No, he had not got the money. He would have given his life to have had it. Never before had he felt so miserable, so useless, such a child. All his poor body, shaken with sobs, expressed a grief so great that she ended by seeing it and feeling for him. She pushed him gently on one side. Come, ducky, let me pass. You must. Be reasonable. You're a baby, and it was all very nice for a week. But today I must attend to my affairs. Think it over now. Your brother, too, is a man. I don't say with him. Ah, do me a kindness. Don't mention to him anything of all this. He has no need to know where I'm going. I always say too much when I'm angry. She laughed, then putting her arms round him and kissing him on the forehead, she added, Goodbye, baby. It's over. All over. You understand? Now I'm off. And she left him. He was standing in the center of the parlor. The last words sounded like a knell in his ears. It is over. All over and the ground seemed to open beneath his feet. In the vacuum of his brain the man who was awaiting Nana had disappeared. Philippe alone remained, continually in the woman's bare arms. She did not deny it. She certainly loved him, as she wished to spare him the grief of knowing her to be unfaithful. It was over. All over. He drew a long breath. He gazed round the room, choked by a weight that was crushing him. Recollections returned to him one by one. The merry nights at La Mignotte, hours of love during which he thought himself her child, then voluptuous pleasure snatched in that very room. And never, never more. He was too little, he had not grown quick enough. Philippe had taken his place because he had a beard. So, it was the end. He could no longer live. His vice had become full of an infinite tenderness, of a sensual adoration in which his whole being was centered. Then how could he forget when his brother would remain there, his brother who was of the same blood, another self whose pleasure drove him mad with jealousy? It was the end. He wished to die. All the doors were left open as the servants noisily scuttled about, they having seen Madame go out on foot. Downstairs, on the bench in the hall, the baker was laughing with Charles and Francois. As Zoe crossed the parlor at a run, she appeared surprised at seeing Georges and asked him if he was waiting for Madame. Yes, he was waiting for her. He had forgotten to tell her something. And, when he was again alone, he ferreted about. Finding nothing better, he took from the dressing-room a pair of sharply pointed scissors which Nana was continually using, cutting her hangnails and little hairs with them. Then, for an hour, he waited patiently, his hand in his pocket, his fingers nervously clutching the scissors. End of chapter 13, part 1